1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason
2: that people are talking about India is massive digitization
0: and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
3: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined by two of my colleagues, one from the US, Kara Marciscano, who's a senior analyst on my team, on our research team, and also. Rafi Avyav, the CEO of WisdomTree UK Limited. Please note, Karen and I are registered representatives of Foreside Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of Investment Products and is not an endorsement or recommendation of any company, security, or investment strategy. The views of our guests are not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. Are we talking with Alex Moazed, who's CEO, founder of company Applico, who is a platform consulting business to... Who works with plat- with companies to to look at their platform business models? Also, the author of a book, Modern Monopolies. We're going to be talking with Alex, Karen, Rafi about what's happening in the technology space, um, some of the developments in platform business models. Just what is a platform business model? What is the case for them? Uh, you know, WisdomTree works with Applico to license some of their data on platform businesses for one of our ETS that we're going to talk about a little bit. Uh, but Alex, thank you so much for joining Behind the Markets. Welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: So maybe uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Applico and what got you to start focusing on uh, mono- these these platform businesses, and and got you to write the book Modern Monopolies.
0: Yeah.
4: So you know, platform business models, as we define them in the book, are are the dominant business model of of the 21st century economy. The reason why is because these businesses don't have one customer. They have two customers. They have a consumer on one side and a producer on the other. And they're asset light in the sense that those producers are actually creating and contributing the inventory into, into that platform, into that ecosystem. That's ultimately what the consumer is, is coming to the platform for, whether that's uh, products that are listed by third party sellers on Amazon or videos listed by content creators on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. Um, But all of these businesses are asset light because they have this two-sided customer nature to them. They have these network effects on both the demand and the supply side of the business, which means that at scale, they have a winner-take-all dynamic. There's only one or two given winners uh, in any given platform market. And once you hit that winner-take-all scale, uh, you naturally are kind of just a, a modern monopoly, hence the name of the book, which means you have the strongest profit margins out of any business model that we analyzed, um, and you have, you know, really the most and strongest strongest growth potential, the strongest defensibility and moats from other businesses encroaching on your territory, because it's just so hard to overcome these these network effects and having these two different user groups on either side of your ecosystem. And what we realized is no one really has, A, identified and defined that business model and how it works and why it's so strong and why it's so dominant. And no one has really kind of codified that business model in the spectrum of the public equities market. Uh, And specifically what Applico does, you know, these large traditional enterprises, many of them incumbents, have not captured the potential of doing M&A uh, and investing or buying a lot of these up-and-coming platform startups—that uh, if you were to do uh, an M&A transaction, it would be wildly accretive and 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 prevent you from being disrupted and actually make you the disruptor.
3: I mean, I remember when I first heard you talking about this on another podcast, and then and then reading the book and and talking about this dominant business model. It, it was it was interesting that it's sort of a unique way of doing business. And these companies are today the fastest growing companies you find. I mean, I think we've looked at the basket uh, and and we we're calling it a growth leaders basket. These companies are growing at thirty percent a year on average over the last three years. and it's you know well above it's sort of top decile for the s and p five hundred for this for these type of growth rates. Uh, and well ahead of things like you know the Nasdaq 100 which is what people often think of as one of the the prime growth markets what do you, why do you think this is the dominant when you say dominant business model and how business conducting i mean what what sort of separates these guys in terms of why they're growing so fast
4: um, i think once you are a you know once you're a public company you've got a multi-billion dollar valuation, um, you've hit some level of this critical mass. And so because you have the margins that you do, because you have that the moats that you do because of the the network effects and that winner-take-all dynamic, it allows you to continue to invest in growth and over-index on that investment, both from just a you know, cash and, and, and capital flow of the, the nuts and bolts of your business, A and B, because of the, um, essentially the trust and flexibility that these types of companies have earned with investors on Wall Street. Predominantly, probably because of those two reasons, these companies are able to continue to invest in growth. They have huge growth opportunities in front of them to either expand in their existing market or expand into adjacent markets. And so a number of the companies uh in the index you see are actually kind of this platform conglomerate status where they don't have one platform business, but they have multiple. Um and I think just solely because of that, that ability to grow, you actually see a lot of these platform companies because of COVID have continued and actually doubled or tripled down on investing in growth and are actually seeing a boon to their business uh because they're purely digital, because they Um, already had a lot of growth opportunity now they have even more and so actually COVID and and because of these dynamics has actually been a boon to many of these businesses to just continue to grow even faster.
3: Kara, let me bring you in Um, I know you're focused on on growth businesses platforms with with uh, Alex and their team and where do you want to go in, in the conversation here?
0: So I'm curious you know, you see a lot of businesses out there using the word platform in their financial filings, right? But obviously, Apico, as a consultant, is you can't just be a a platform and expect to have success. And that's where you guys come in and make sure that those businesses that are trying to be platforms are identifying the right industries or sectors or verticals to disrupt. So what do you think is the the critical factor for success? Um, And You know, of course, from the perspective of investment side, you require more than just looking for the word platform. You guys go deep into the details of what's really driving the success of these companies. So maybe if you could just talk about some of those critical factors and what makes really a strong, powerful, pure play platform business rather than just a business that's using the word platform for recognition from the street.
4: Yeah. So what what we look at um, and what we codify is what percent of platform revenue do these public companies have? And you will find that, there, as you said, there are many companies in their ten Ks in their annual reports will describe themselves as a platform company. Now, many of those companies just simply have no platform dynamics, right? They they don't have any two customer base. They they don't have a concept of network effect. They They don't have an asset-like business model. Um, you know, you, you just go down the list of here are all the characteristics of platform. Do you have that? And very often they actually don't. And, and you see that with a lot of SaaS companies, um, that will say that their product is a technology platform. Um, it doesn't mean that their business is bad. It just means that you don't have, again, that winner-take all dynamic, the network effects, the defensibility, the lock-in that comes with having this two-sided dynamic on your business. If you're a SaaS business, you know, you would need really like a community of app developers that are then making apps on top of your SaaS business, for example. And some of the some of the plat some of the companies are or these self-described platform companies might have a platform dynamic. They might have, say, an app store. Uh, with developers making apps on top of their on top of their platform, uh, or on top of their product, but but what we look at is that percent of platform revenue is is this platform business even though it might be legitimate, is it a material and contributing factor to the overall profile of the business? So you do see a number of companies that are trying to legitimately come up, become a platform business in the way we use the definition but they're not really at that tipping point at that threshold uh, for it to be a material amount of their overall revenue makeup. So that's really the, for the companies that actually do have the beginnings of a platform, that's what we're really dialing into is um, have, ha- has they really hit a level of maturity or scale with their platform entity? And, and the one caveat I'll add is some of the best platforms, even some of the biggest ones, like, let's say, Amazon um, or Apple, they are actually both. They are a hybrid business. They have platform revenue, and then they have what we would call linear revenue. And so for Amazon, they are white-labeling products. They're, they're a, a 1P reseller of products, and then they have their own white-label products, not even getting into AWS and all the things with that, but just if we look at their product marketplace. So many of the best platform businesses that are in the index actually have platform revenue and linear revenue. So we actually like to see both. The question is, is that platform revenue a material amount of your business? So Shopify, for example, has two platform businesses. They do have an app marketplace on top of you know their SaaS e-commerce product. And then they just launched the Shop app, which is a product marketplace, to let consumers buy products from Shopify's actual SaaS customers, these merchants. Neither of those businesses really have a material amount of revenue contribution to Shopify. They, they may eventually in the future. Um, but when you, when you look at where does Shopify's actual revenue contribution come from, it's from them selling their e-commerce tools and, and SaaS offering. So that could change in the future. Um, and they could provide more definition on those revenue streams as they become more material. But right now it's still nascent. So when you look at the competitive makeup of that business in the landscape, they don't have that same equivalent defensibility uh, or moat as you would if you were one of these dominant platform businesses.
3: Let me just reintroduce our guests here quickly. We've got Alex Mozet, CEO of Applico. Kara Marsiscano, senior analyst, of Wisdom Tree. Raffi Aviav of, of Wisdom Tree in in London. Raffi, you you focus a lot on tech trends generally um, in some of the the products you guys focus on in europe and i know your personal interests are are in tech any sense of what how you see what what alex is focused on uh some of the things he just talked about SaaS and platforms what, what what's any where where do you want to go here
2: well uh, i think thanks jeremy i think uh i i agree with alex in terms of how he's characterizing the platform businesses and and definitely some of the advantages and today when we look we can already see uh you know, a multitude of platform businesses as publicly listed companies, many of whom uh, are worth uh, north of uh, $10 billion. How do these start, these two-sided networks? How do you, uh, sort of, Alex, how do you solve the chicken and egg problem? Of You need customers to get the providers. You need the providers to get the customers. How, you know, have you seen any sort of particularly successful model of doing that or what are the tools available for um, entrepreneurs today to start when they start a platform business?
4: Yeah. I mean, that, that's the billion dollar question, or I I guess it could also be the trillion dollar question these days. Um, You know, solving the chicken and egg problem is, is, is a challenge that every platform experiences not once, but literally at every stage of growth. Right. So it is, is the single most recurring problem and challenge that every platform will have to overcome repeatedly. Um, and there are a variety of strategies uh, that you can employ to overcome it. You know, when you look at how a lot of platform businesses get started, uh, usually, you know, you need a couple things, a couple, you got to check a couple boxes off. One, you got to start small. You got to start bottom up, right? If you try to enlist participation from either um, large customers or large suppliers, that's not a uh, that's not a good you don't have much leverage over them, right? You want to start where there's a lot of fragmented supply and a lot of fragmented demand. and And it's in these smaller users, those more individual or if you're going after businesses, the smaller businesses, You want to start small, you want to start with highly fragmented supply or and demand. It is in those areas where you can now start to enlist some form of demand and some form of supply. When you think about, okay, on which side of this do I start if I can't go after both sides in the beginning, right? So a lot of the time you'll see businesses start as a linear business, either focusing on capturing supply or focusing on capturing demand. Uh, there's a myriad of examples of, you know, going in either direction, which is really just industry dependent. But you want to you can usually try to focus on one, build up enough traction either on the demand or supply side. And then you can try to open up your business to enlist the support of the other uh, the other user group, either the consumer or the producer based upon who who is not already participating. Um, so you'll see even from from anyone like an Uber To go do this where uh, when they were opening up into new markets, they would just go hire basically black car drivers and pay them, um, you know, daily wages and, and pre book them so they could seed, you know, 50 drivers in a market when they're going to go into that market and start driving supply. So, you know, usually, especially a lot of these hyper localized businesses, you might be solving for supply in a linear manner when you're entering that new market, then you scale demand and then you can start to open up and kind of platformize your supply. Um, so there's a lot of different strategies to it, but you want to start small and you want to have heavily fragmented supply and demand. Spotify, for example, uh, does not have any fragmented supply when it comes to music. There's basically four record labels and they control all the music. Yes, there are a myriad of artists, but all of the the rights to their music is basically controlled by four entities. Really, one entity, the RILA, uh, is like the common industry group, that then negotiates the prices with Spotify. That's why Spotify's margins really aren't anything to write home about. Spotify has been making a huge push to get into podcasting. So that's heavily fragmented supply, basically free content, right? Um, and so how can they take a, a fragmented audience of consumers And expand into a fragmented source of supply in podcasting. So that is why when we look at Spotify's business today, they don't have fragmented supply. They don't have a network effect on supply. There's no lock in of supply. It's just who can pay the record labels enough, you know, licensing fees to get that music. As they build a stronger and more formidable base of supply amongst podcasting, we expect to see more defensibility more network effect, more lock-in uh, come from building very strong tie-ins with that very fragmented audience of podcasters.
2: I love that example. I, I think it's a fantastic example uh, of, of something people often talk about and, and confuse, which is the difference between aggregators and platforms. And like, it, it's all captured within that Spotify example. Would you mind just walking us through kind of what, what, what people... What is the difference between aggregators and uh, platforms, and how is that sort of perfectly captured by that Spotify example you just gave?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, aggregator theory uh, by my friend Ben Thompson, you know, it's it's really around saying if you can capture demand, if you can be that main demand spigot and aggregate that consumption, then you irrespective of if your supply is more linear versus platform, um, you will reign supreme, right? And, 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 and as long as no one is disintermediating you between you and your customer, that demand source, then um, that's what matters, right? Platform theory is different because it actually says that the source of supply is paramount to the long-term success of the business, right? It, it goes hand-in-hand with having an asset-light business, goes hand-in-hand with having a winner-take-all market. Another example is Netflix, right? Netflix of recent has been on a boon with COVID and and the shift to digital, but the next few years for Netflix are going to be drastically different than the past few years when they were literally the only game in town. I mean, there's as as another case in point example, if you have a winner-take-all market, it is literally not possible for five companies in the span of 12 months to launch a formidable product on your turf, right? Think about um, iOS and Android versus Microsoft. Microsoft spending like $7 billion or whatever it was to buy Nokia and, and come aggressively after iOS and Android with, with like Windows Mobile or whatever they called it. And it failed, right? It was just a non-starter because there's no way that Microsoft, despite spending billions of dollars and already having some stuff in mobile, could convince developers to create yet a third application for yet a third operating system. Similarly, if you look at YouTube, YouTube and Netflix have roughly similar revenue. Uh, but YouTube's defensibility, I mean, who is trying to go after YouTube right now? Vimeo kind of tried with IAC and Barry Diller, who understands platforms extremely well, by the way. He owns Expedia. He's done roll-ups with HomeAdvisor and Angie's List and Handy. The guy gets platforms very well they pivoted Vimeo away from trying to be a pseudo-competitor to YouTube. You can't compete with YouTube. It's a monopoly. Um, Netflix, on the other hand, you've got five competitors in basically 12 months. This is Amazon with Amazon Prime, Apple Plus, Disney Plus, Comcast Pe- Peacock, at and with HBO Max, maybe one or two others. I'm forgetting. I don't know. Maybe like, uh, I don't know, Roku. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's a lot of competitors. And now, the next five years, when you look at their strategy, it's just create more content. And all that content is created linearly. They're buying or licensing or creating all of that content. It sits on their balance sheet. And although they show on their P&L profitability, if you amortize that content, today they amortize that content against a four-year amortization schedule. If you amortize that content on a three-year amortization schedule, Netflix is a wildly lost losing company in the sense of they're just hemorrhaging profits. So it really just comes down to, you know, for me, profitability of Netflix is more of an accounting function of how do they amortize this very, I would say, top-heavy balance sheet. That's the whole proposition of supply-side network effect, right, of platform model versus aggregator versus platform is it's an asset-like business. My YouTube videos don't sit on my balance sheet. So, you know, when I think about that defensibility, um, the next few years of Netflix, their defensibility is severely hampered as compared to having a network of content creators that are actively creating content and contributing content into the platform for free or with some kind of rev share model, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, whereas you see Spotify going in the other direction, Spotify going from a linear kind of aggregator model to saying, I need differentiated fragmented supply. I need to move more platform, right, with the podcaster source of supply. Netflix doesn't seem to be trying to embrace this thing called user-generated content. Um, and they seem to just be doubling down on, you know, we're just going to be the biggest and baddest movie studio on the street. And um, it doesn't mean that Netflix is going to go out of business. I think the question is, does Netflix still command double the PE multiple that Disney does? And do investors start to see their business as less, um, you know, of, of being just literally valued at double what Disney is valued? Um, or maybe does that start to chip away? Cause if that starts to chip away, then the stock price starts to fall rather drastically. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not bullish on, on Netflix long term.
3: Interesting perspective there, Alex. Uh, I mean, one of the, the key words you keep talking about, natural monopolies and sort of winner take all. And, you know, there's a number of examples and you have a lot of the big tech CEOs testifying this week uh, in Washington. What, when, when, you, when you think about, should we be worried as consumers uh, about this competition in tech? I saw an interview this week with Bill Gates on, on CNBC, where he was talking about how he thinks there's a lot of natural competition in tech and people shouldn't be concerned about the 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 big monopolies, uh, quote unquote monopolies. What's your sense on is, are consumers being hurt? Does government have to step in to break these companies up? Is there a risk to that? What's what's your sense of the political winds of change?
4: Um, I, I think that these companies will come out of any DOJ FTC review unscathed, not because they aren't a monopoly and not because they aren't violating antitrust policy, but just because our officials are too inept to thread the needle on on, on landing the case. and it's because they focus on trying to make the argument that consumers are disadvantaged by these platforms and what they fail to understand is that by definition, these platforms have two customers, a consumer and a producer. And when you look at where do producers or where do platforms take advantage of users first on the, on the consumption or on the supply side, it is 110% of the time on supply. When you look at what Microsoft got in trouble for in the 90s, it wasn't for consumers. It was because they were playing games with the different web browsers and bundling their browser and not letting other developers get freedom of distribution on windows. And so it is always on the supply side that you see platforms getting in trouble for. Um, When you look at what the EU is investigating Amazon for, which is is Amazon competing unfairly with their third-party sellers. Um, And that is the right conversation to be had. Now, you know, the EU tends to kind of take a shotgun blast where they like go after the platforms with like 20 different complaints. And then I think just kind of see what sticks. Um, that is the one complaint which I think is appropriately targeted at the platforms focused on their supply. And you can make an argument that if you treat producers as customers, which they are, who does Amazon make money off of? When you buy a product from a third party seller on Amazon, Amazon is taking its fee from the seller. That's actually the customer of Amazon, is the seller paying Amazon, you know, 15% of, of the purchase price. So if you treat sellers as customers, then the past 50 years of antitrust president actually fits rather perfectly. Because if you ran the numbers, Amazon controls over 70% of the spend for a third-party seller in the United States e-commerce, right? So if you add up all the marketplaces that are out there. Amazon, eBay, um, Farfetch, Real, some of these boutique ones like StockX, Goat, et cetera, Amazon, for the total amount of products sold by third-party sellers in the United States, over 70% of them are being sold on Amazon. So if you are a third-party seller and Amazon takes action against you or treats you unfairly or steals your data and then uses it against you, which they do all the time, by the way, um, that can be considered an antitrust violation because you are a monopoly because you control over 70% of the market. But it's not over 70% of the market of e-commerce. It's over 70% of the market for a third-party seller to sell their stuff through an online marketplace. Now, you got to narrow in that definition. And I just think that lens is what the DOJ and the FTC have failed to do. We'll see if the EU is able to stay focused um, and thread the needle on that. But, you know, I'm not holding my breath. So I think largely the nature of the conversation in the U.S. is again, it's like, oh, they take advantage of supply, but then they try and bring it all the way back around to the consumer. And they say, oh, but the consumer is also at a disadvantage and therefore you did things wrong, platform monopoly. And, uh, it'll just never work. You know, maybe they pay a fine of like $500 million and, and their stock will go up, um, because the regu- the regulatory fear is gone. So yeah, I think they'll be fine.
3: We have to take a short break, Um, but we're going to be back. We have the full hour with Alex, Kara, and Rafi. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. We'll be back after a short break. Okay. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking with Alex Mozed, CEO and founder of Applico. We've got Rafi Aviav, COO of Wisdom Trees UK Limited. We've got Kara Marciscano, senior analyst on my team on research here at Wisdom WisdomTree. Uh, Kara, I, we're, we've been talking about platforms, uh, and right before the break, we're talking about some of the regulatory risk. I, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Where are uh what are you thinking about here on, in terms of platforms and where we should go with, with Alex?
0: So what I think is really interesting is how you talked about how you would expect, for example, Amazon taking maybe a legal fee after some of these antitrust claims are settled and the stock actually responding positively. So is that correct to say that the real sort of headline regulatory risk for these companies like Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook is the threat then not getting broken up, or is it just sort of the threat of taking a hit to earnings, whether that be from legal fees or from limiting how much they can, for example, Amazon, sort of take advantage of the suppliers on their site? Is, are these companies getting broken up a real risk in your view?
4: Yeah, I think 0% chance. Um, you know, the, they are so far away from making a valid argument that even sticks, let alone get to the point where it's not some kind of settlement, or you know, they have some kind of different practices they implement, or, you know, give the FTC some kind of like transparency reporting or something like that. There is a there is a whole spectrum of like mitigation protocols, you know, between settling for half a billion dollars and you know, breaking up the company. So I think breaking up the company, um, or, you know, forcing the sale of these things and, and so on and so forth. I mean, um, we are, we are just struggling to figure out how do we handle Chinese platform companies from operating in the United States, let alone, you know, the, the DOJ figuring out how, how should we break these companies up or is that even appropriate? I, I do think the appropriate recourse for how platforms should change, even the tech monopolies, it is around protecting supply, right? If you are a driver on Uber, if you are a seller on Amazon, if you are a content creator on YouTube, Facebook, uh, et cetera, you need more protection because if the platform kicks you off, or if the platform tells you, hey, Uber driver, instead of 20%, I'm taking 25%, you can't do anything. Or if they ban you uh, or penalize you, there's usually no way that you can refute it or present another side of, of the story. And and for many people, particularly on these like gig economy or service marketplace or product marketplace companies, and actually even YouTube, I mean, just about all these, once you're in that tech monopoly stage, you have people that have their whole livelihoods uh, built up using really just one of these platform companies, right? Um, maybe two at most. So if you get banned and you have no recourse put in place, then, you know, you're really at a loss. And, and that legitimately is where the government should help um, to protect these suppliers, these producers, where there really is only one channel. Hey, I'm an Uber, you know, I'm basically a taxi driver. I can work on Uber or Lyft. It doesn't get more straightforward than that. Although you see continuously like California AB5's law as a complete travesty and completely missing the mark on what they, you know, what they claim is to try and protect the gig economy workers, but instead is really just a money grab so that the state can, can try to extract more fees from these, uh, from all companies that are hiring 1099 workers. So, you know, it's really unfortunate to see. There's kind of the altruism around, oh, we're trying to do this to, to, to help, you know, people. Um, but then in the reality of it, the way it never hits home on, on the actual delivery of the regulation, if there even is any. So, yeah, the ability for them to, to, to break someone up, I, I in the next 10 years, I give it
0: 0%. Interesting. Um, So, you know, go ahead, Rafi.
2: No, please, Karen.
0: I was just going to touch on, you know, while we're on these winner-take-all dynamics that you're talking about, you know, we obviously are aware of some of those more mature industries where there's a dominant player. We've been talking about Amazon for a while now. But where do you see, I guess, what you could call, like, platform wars and immature industries where the dominant player hasn't emerged yet one that comes to mind for me is you know takeaway food with Uber Eats and Grubhub and the acquisition that recently occurred you know what do you see for that industry or any industry where you see you're waiting for an emerging dominant player
4: yeah i think you know food we we had hoped that there there would just be kind of natural consolidation and and, and you could have a couple players. I, mean, I think all, all the players had kind of hoped, that, um, just so you stop having platform wars. When platform wars happen, the, the users win, um, the consumers and the producers. So it's, it's good for restaurateurs, although there's a lot of other things hurting restaurateurs right now. And it's good for consumers to, to have the platform wars continue. So, you know, I think naturally there will need to be, a, again, a winner take all dynamic, a just a number one and number two. And, and that, that third player will just be a distant third. So, um, you're seeing that with the Uber and Postmates deal. And, and I, and I think that, um, eventually you'll, you'll probably see, you will have to see some form of other consolidation, um, as, as these markets seek to mature and actually drive profitability. Um, and I think, you know, what's going on with COVID will probably present some interesting dynamics and opportunities for, for, for that to happen. But I think other areas um, which are kind of up and coming is, I would say maybe two or three I'd highlight, is um, financial service marketplaces, or I would call it these regulated industries with burgeoning platform companies in them. So I would throw financial services and healthcare in Right so um in healthcare we have uh, Teladoc in here and in financial services we have Market Access. Market Access is you know the largest kind of bond trading platform that's out there. So and Teladoc doing you know telemedicine and telehealth. Um Teladoc has a has maybe tripled its stock price in the past maybe 3 or 4 months. Um, market access has also performed rather strongly, but these regulated industries have had somewhat nascent um, platforms, except for if you know if you think about like um, you know the Nasdaq or ICE, which owns the New York Stock Exchange, right? So you, you, those are you know the stock exchanges have been around forever, but there are kind of this new age, this new breed of marketplaces and financial services and and healthcare with with Teladoc. So I think that's going to be interesting. Um, and, and there's going to be a lot of a- action there, particularly in healthcare. Um, the other area are these kind of like more boutique, many of them kind of like consignment, um, uh, marketplace, product marketplaces. So, you know, you see a Farfetch, you see a Real Real, you have a few other private, um, product marketplaces with StockX, uh, with Goat, uh, which, uh, Footlocker invested hundred million dollars into a couple of years ago and StockX came out with their report recently. And they said that we are may and June were our two strongest months ever by a long shot. I mean, you expect every month of theirs to kind of be an improvement, but with COVID not only was it an improvement over the prior months, but it was, you know, by head and shoulders improvement. So you're actually seeing an Etsy similarly, um, also in the index, uh, that kind of niche like craft marketplace, uh, I think they have maybe similarly tripled from their low um, in uh, in in March or April. Uh, so Etsy's been on fire, um, and and maybe was like maybe fifty or sixty percent up from from kind of where they were in February b- before COVID. So Etsy doing very strong as well. So you kind of see these like niche marketplaces, kind of like consignment marketplaces, um, still performing very strongly and still relatively nascent compared to, you know, just this overall shift in e-commerce or you know in retail to e-commerce. And I think these digital behaviors are actually just going to continue to compound upon themselves. Um, there, you know, obviously when retail stores can open up again, people will go back and, and be able to buy more stuff in stores. But the digital behavior acceleration, I don't think, is going to slow down. And so you're seeing huge boon to that. it really, be really interesting to watch some of these uh, product marketplaces, niche product marketplace earnings releases that are coming up over the next few weeks, um, many of them also in the index. So um, those would be a couple of the areas that, that I think will be pretty interesting to, to keep an eye on.
0: That compounding effect that you alluded to is really powerful. You talk about, you know, consolidation among existing platforms. Plus, you already have the existing dominant platforms, Amazon, Microsoft. Um, you have these burgeoning platforms in healthcare and financial services that you mentioned. That all, to me, signals, you know, growth for platforms as a subsector. I guess you could call it within the broader investment universe. So I, I wanted to turn to what you predicted in your book, your bestseller in 2016, Modern Monopolies. You predicted that 4% of the S&P 500 could be platform businesses and, thir- and making up 13% of the index's net income by 2020. So we're here today and, you know, very conservatively, just back of the envelope, I'd say there are at least 20 companies in the S&P 500 that are platforms that's Four percent of the constituents, if you're just doing it by count, by weight, that's 30 percent, um, obviously, because you have those mega cap names in there. Um, and in terms of earnings relative to the index, it's 20 percent of the index's earnings are coming from platforms. That's five percent. I mean, sorry, five years ahead of the prediction that you had originally. So what are your if you have any updated thoughts on where you see growth for platforms within, you know, the S and P 500 index or, or more broadly.
4: Um, Yeah. You know, I I appreciate you bringing that up. We, we got some flack when we put those uh, those numbers out there uh, four years ago. Now book came out 2016. And um, I mean, to me it just makes sense. And to me, Honestly, we're, just, we're still at the beginning. Um, when you look at just the, the, the level of penetration that these companies have in the, in the overall markets that they're in, it's still relatively small. And when you look at their ability, what are they doing right now? They are doubling and tripling down. They are just continuing to invest in growth. Meanwhile, you have everyone else kind of entrenching. Um, so when you look at that dynamic and they see the ability to expand into adjacent markets, um, they see, you know, as we've spoken about this huge kind of digital behavior acceleration, um, they're able to, uh, to really, you know, our theory going into this was, in a crisis or in a downturn, they're going to dip less and they're going to bounce back faster. And actually in the dip or in the downturn, they're going to be able to continue to invest in growth, which we've seen. And that means that when there is a bounce back, they'll just be able to, 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 to scale even faster. And, and we kind of had a, a little microcosm of this, right? The past few months where We had a a very brief but sharp um, decline. And then, you know, what what looks like we'll see if it continues this this kind of V-shaped recovery. And what you are seeing is just the platforms are leading the pack. Um, and, uh, And. And and I think you're seeing that trend continuing going into the future, particularly as you see. Some of these platforms when they're in this like single digit, you know, mark billion, single digit market cap billion um, tranche, and the ones that are able to step up into this platform conglomerate status where they don't have one platform business, but they have multiple platform businesses that they are able to benefit from the compounding nature of their network effect. Within their own conglomerate. Right. So an example of this would be Uber versus Lyft. Both of which are in the index. But when you look at Uber's ability to weather the storm of COVID versus Lyft, which is only in ride sharing versus Uber has obviously ride sharing and Uber Eats and Mason business and freight and some other things which are which are more of a, you know, um, a loss and, and just continued investment for them than anything. But Uber Eats has really been the saving grace for Uber platform conglomerate, um, particularly with everything that's going on with COVID. So you get these more differentiated companies. Um, I think when you look at the index also, just the status of the index going forward, we have exposure to travel and hospitality. We have, we have actually full exposure across the gamut of the economy. Right. We're just not. These aren't just tech companies. We basically have been able to to pick the the creme de la creme of every company in its respective vertical. If you think about traditional verticals in the economy. So we have exposure to Expedia and booking and they have dipped. They have come back a little bit, but they're clearly not where they used to be and rightly so. But when you compare um, their their recovery versus the more traditional hotel players and travel players. It's not even close. Um and so again, even in the companies that are kind of thriving, like the the famgos of the world versus say the platform companies in travel, you still see that same dynamic. They dip less and they bounce back faster relative to um the rest of the market. So I think you're gonna see that continue and they're gonna continue to 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 double down and invest and and um, and probably widen the gap as compared to the the traditional incumbents, right? The kind of analog uh, businesses that that have not been able to invest in digital or e-commerce or or, or the digitization of their business.
2: Alex, I, I I think that the I I couldn't agree more with how you're characterizing this, and 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 great question from sort of Kara on the robustness of these businesses. And we see them taking an increasing market share of the uh, market capitalization of the S and P. How does one value these businesses? Like we have, you know, in the investment world, we're used to just discounted cash flow and uh, an assumption on growth rate. And here, with these businesses, you have not only the, the added difficulty of exponential growth sometimes. Uh, for some of these more mature businesses, the it's not so much exponential bro- growth, but you still see them investing a lot to solve for that chicken and egg problem on a continuous fashion, like you said. And a business like Amazon still not showing incredible profit, although the potential, everyone seems to agree, uh, according to the valuation is there. How does one go about valuing these businesses?
4: So, um, I I think, you know, any of these uh, high-flying tech companies, whether they're platforms or, you know, linear tech companies uh, are pretty much all evaluated growth prospects, right? I mean, if they beat earnings, but they aren't as, don't have as strong of a growth prospect for the next quarter or two that wall street expected the stock falls is that the correct or false way to look at that you know that's that's a whole other conversation but um, everyone's looking at growth for for these companies but even even when you look at um, you know the 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 like Visa and MasterCard's world uh, Visa and MasterCard of the world which which are you know might classify as like older school platform businesses, still relative for them, they're seeing very strong growth um in in uh in, in the market for themselves. So um I think at least the investors and the stock, the biggest mover is the growth. Now how do they use how how do they use um how do they have growth either in their core platform business which I think that's the crazy thing about Amazon is, you know, you look at like a, a Microsoft where they really had to kind of shift what that core revenue driver, that core platform revenue driver was. And they've, they've, they've done a fantastic job in making that evolution. That's not an easy evolution, right? But I think that's also why, because they've been able to make that shift because you do have huge growth in, in the cloud and Azure and all these kinds of areas. Um, that you've seen them hit the you know the trillion dollar valuation status and 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 you know perform very well um, with their multiples and so on and so forth so if if there isn't strong growth in the core business then they need to invest in other up and coming uh, platform businesses that could eventually become that core so I think you know that's one of the things that um, that people are looking very closely at for Google and Google search is how well are they able to diversify um, if search is starting to peak, then how well can they diversify growth into other areas? And now started to finally break out their YouTube revenue and, and some of these other business um, kind of composition of overall revenue to help, I think to help start telling that story uh, about, Hey, here's our overall revenue makeup and how strong these other platforms are. But the crazy thing about Amazon is their core platform business, you know, 26 years into the business is still seeing such huge growth potential, not to mention the other things that they have going for them, AWS and you know, a myriad of other uh platform businesses that they've spun up over the years, um, certainly are also seeing, you know, strong growth in their own right. So that, that to me is uh Is just why it's such a uh, why everyone just keeps talking about Amazon um, as compared to you know what's the growth story for some of these other companies?
3: We're talking with Alex Mozed, CEO of Applico. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Karamar Siscano, Rafi Aviav, talking about what's happening in these platform business models. Alex, the you know one of the interesting things we we talked a little bit about you know, Kara's point on how much dominating these companies are now in, in market cap and, and in a growing share of earnings. You know, one of the questions is, when you think about creating access, we talked about how, you know, Wisdom Tree license your signals for one of our ETS now called the Growth Leaders Fund, you know, formerly known as the Modern Tech Platforms Fund. But, you know, we we do believe these companies are growth leaders, and it's but it's more than one sector, right, in the sense of it's not just a quote-unquote tech sector play. This is platforms are interacting across all verticals or different sectors. Do you want to talk about how, you know, the the platforms are penetrating these different market verticals and, and where you see that, you know, evolving over time?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think we have, the index has, extremely strong differentiation um, especially relative to you know many many tech indexes or, or other kind of high growth indices which um, you know which are just o- over indexed in in you know in one or two sectors so these platform business it, platform businesses is not a sector specific classification instead because we're aligning around the business model that's a horizontal. Classification that can cut across theoretically any industry that's out there, and I think when you look at the index, you actually see that from from healthcare to financial services to hospitality to you know restaurants um, to travel. Uh, let's see, if, you know, just these general kind of retail, general retail and niche retail, B two B. Uh, B2B retail, B2B kind of trading you're seeing in there, um, you know, and then and then you have kind of the 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 new form of media businesses, right? Social medias, content platforms, uh, which have kind of supplanted um, what you might regard as like traditional media. So you have transportation in here. You think about Uber and a Lyft. And then you have. um You know, you have. Also, some representation um, in in uh, in like automotive with car marketplaces or with um, uh, like dating with Match Group. Uh, so it it really kind of is um, or or or, or SaaS software like B two B SaaS software with like Salesforce, for example. So um, payments with Visa, Mastercard. So you really do have across, I would say, a, a, a nice horizontal swath across a variety of different industries that, that make up the overall economy. Um, the question is, basically, what are the best companies in each of these verticals? And the, the natural answer, or the, the answer that's going to be right nine times out of ten is, oh, well, what's, what's the fast-growing, dominant platform business in that sector? Um, and so that is essentially what has comprised this index. Uh, we don't look at every vertical and, and then pick out, oh, this is a platform business. Instead, we just say, okay, what are all the companies that have platform revenue? And, uh, and this is the basket, essentially. So, uh, you naturally, just kind of as a derivative of that analysis, get a nice uh, cross section across all these different verticals
3: and what I liked about it is that you know we always think about you know all the academic research tends to favor value over quote unquote growth. Uh, we're calling this growth leaders now. I think it's it's you know you've you've identified the the firms that are growing the fastest and and they're and they you know they are sort of taking over a lot of. Uh, a lot of business, and so I think it's it's sort of an interesting way of getting at growth in a new angle by identifying these platform business models. So very interesting uh, work we're doing here. Um, Rafi, when you know you you guys focus on tech trends generally, um, you also focus on cloud, some other areas of tech. Any any commentary on on the developments you see within the tech space? How you're thinking about uh, the technology sector more broadly?
2: Well, I, I think. Uh... I think network effects show up in a lot of businesses. Platforms are definitely uh, one one of the more dominant ones where this is uh, the clearest. But I think uh, you see network effects all over the place, where basically the marginal utility for sorry the utility for the marginal user is greater the more users there are in the platform. Uh, and 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 that occurs even in ETFs uh, we see that as you know and uh, I think other examples of businesses that uh, this is starting to be apparent that this exists in are businesses that uh, that at their core are about uh, artificial intelligence and and sort of where you get this uh, flywheel of Getting data, which generates uh, certain results which help you get more clients which generate more data and helps you improve your prediction and your and your, the results and the insights you're able to provide and then uh, and then eventually every additional user really benefits from all the other users on the platform, and we're seeing those kind of network effects. We, we see entrepreneurs, we see business managers look, the, look for these in every business and try as a way to improve what they're doing and improve the service and the value that they're adding for their customers. And that goes from AI to cybersecurity uh, through various marketplaces, obviously. So it's really a fascinating time where the business model is being redefined and valuations for companies are basically uh i think being deduced from well let's say there is a uh winner takes it all or at most three winners take all uh and and how do we value these companies why don't we look at the terminal value of this industry divided by three and and basically all the utility generated there is going to be allocated to one or two companies which is uh incredible so uh yeah super exciting times, and uh, I'm glad we have uh, Alex on our side to kind of help us uh, um, uh, think about this uh, in, a, in a more organized framework. So uh, thank you for this conversation. It's, it, it's really been uh, great and, and very enjoyed, joyful for me.
3: Alex, when you think about where applico's going outside of of work on this uh growth leaders concept where what in terms of your traditional consulting business, how you're trying to help transform sort of old scale businesses to platforms any commentary about how that's going and, and companies uh that should think about reaching out to you
4: yeah i mean we um we'll have some exciting news over, over the next number of months and just you know, we've actually been busier than ever because these tr- these traditional enterprises have so much latent assets, so much kind of latent demand. They have a lot of intrinsic value that they're not tapping into, very strong balance sheets. Uh, now they have a huge urgency to figure out, quote unquote, digital. And a lot of these tech startups, so believe it or not, are actually somewhat in a precarious position because the VC industry, is largely on pause. So you have huge urgency from large enterprises to innovate and embrace digital. Um, You have tech startups that need cash and there's a gap there. So, so, you know, in terms of uh, large enterprises being able to embrace platform opportunities, use M&A to help accelerate their ability to capture it, we've been busier than ever. And I think, you know, we'll have a lot of exciting kind of, announcements and deals coming out uh, in the near future on that front. But, you know, I think the the general thesis that, you know, these large enterprises have very strong balance sheets. And if you can use that balance sheet effectively, you know, and you look at the multiples back to your point, Rafi, about, you know, how our business is valued. You look at how these large, many of them, Kind of incumbent conglomerates are valued relative to the cash they generate and throw off, and have very profitable businesses. Relative to the disruptor tech startups, many of them platforms with crazy growth but no earnings for a while. Um, and you, figure, you know, you just say, I, I don't understand uh, how these two things can be valued against such different kind of valuation frameworks, right? Um, So basically, when you look at how do you thread the needle between those two worlds and you say, hey, if I can take the assets of a large enterprise and use them because there's five startups in a space, and if I buy this one, and now I kind of automatically de facto can make it the dominant player out of the five, um, hmm, you know, that seems like a pretty good opportunity. So, So we actually see a myriad of opportunity across a lot of verticals, and our ethos is, these incumbents have a lot of room to innovate in front of them. You know, even though we we talk about how these platforms are just on a tear and they're going to continue to be on a tear, it doesn't mean that the incumbents have their hands be- tied behind their back and, and don't have any options. They do have plenty of options, um, but it is going to take risk, calculated risk and you, and you are going to have to accelerate and most likely use some form of strategic investment partnership or M&A to play catch up um, or just kind of get out in front of where you need to be. Otherwise, just building it from scratch at this stage in the game in many of these industries, it's just uh, it's too late. I'll highlight one company on this, which is Walmart. Walmart's not in the index, but I relish the day uh, to which to the point where they could be included. Because I think Walmart will go down as one of the best business transformations in the past 50 years. Walmart tried to do a build from scratch strategy for Walmart Marketplace in 2009. It failed. They bought Jet.com for $3.3 billion in 2016. Mark Laurie now heads up all U.S. e-commerce for Walmart. Um, Walmart's still doing like $520 billion in total throughput as compared to Amazon, which what in, 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 in 2018 was doing like $270 billion in GMB. You know, at that point, Walmart was almost roughly double the throughput, but you know, a fraction of the valuation. And so you say, Hey, you take Walmart's throughput and they've been able to use grocery. They've been able to use, you know, a lot of different things in their, in their toolbox to juice digital demand. And and during COVID, their digital demand has been on fire and their marketplace growth has been very strong quarter over quarter, year over year, beating analyst expectations. So I think Walmart's emerging as that strong number two. It's still a relatively distant number two from Amazon, but even Walmart being a strong number two behind Amazon,
2: you know, okay,
4: now you think, okay, well, what multiples is Walmart valued against? if they can start to tap into this growth, continue to have this growth, hmm, you know I think it starts to change the lens that you view uh, a Walmart valuation model, um, as you start to see marketplace and platform model and network effects and all these kinds of things become a more dominant part of the overall makeup of the business. So there's a lot of really cool things happening in that context despite platforms just continuing to be on a tear.
3: Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Alex, Rafi, Kara, thanks so much all for joining. Uh, If you want to keep learning about platform businesses, Alex, you do your own podcast and YouTube series called Winner Takes All. Is that right?
4: Yep. Mm -hmm. If
3: people want to look for you, uh, Applico and Alex Mosette are doing a lot of content on platforms. Kara has been Came, came on his, uh, his show once. I'm sure we'll be on again. Uh, but thank you all for joining our discussion. I've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Uh, I should note, investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology platform companies have significant exposure to consumers and businesses and a failure to attract and retain a substantial number of such users to a company's product, services, content, or technology could adversely affect operating results. In addition, technology platform companies may face intense competition and in the development of new products in a complex and uncertain process. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risk charges, expenses, WisdomTree UK Limited is a subsidiary of WisdomTree Investments,
1: Inc. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.